Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Fancy Scientist podcast. I am super excited about today's episode. Tomorrow is Earth Day, so for the month of April, I am continuing on my series of giving you eco-friendly tips that you can use to help live a more sustainable lifestyle. Now, today is not going to be as much about a tip as it is about a premise, but this premise is the most important thing in my mind because without it, we cannot continue the cycle of conservation. So I'm going to talk to you today about that super important concept, and I'm going to talk to you too about community science or citizen science and how that particularly can have a strong effect on this 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 concept that we're going to talk about today. And a couple of years ago, actually, I think it was maybe 2015, I organized a symposium at the International Conference or International Congress for Conservation Biology put on by the Society for Conservation Biology. And we proposed this topic. And then a few years later, we collected research on it. And we published a paper that is now in Frontiers in Ecology and the Environment. It's called Bridging the Gap, the Nature Gap, Can Citizen Science Reverse the Extinction of Experience? So we're going to talk all about that today, this super important concept, and set you up for next week, because next week we're actually talking to a community scientist, a volunteer, and specifically about a really cool event that you can participate in, the City Nature Challenge. So let's jump in and get started talking about this concept of the extinction of experience and why it's so gosh darn important. Before we get started, I just wanted to talk about a new program that I am running and I need some founding members to help me co-create this project. It is for kids around ages of 8 to 12 and their parents. And the goal of this program is to get outside, get connected to nature, and get them learning about wildlife and nature by using real wildlife biology activities that we do as scientists so that they can learn about science, the process of science. It's so often in school, you're just you're just memorizing facts or just learning about animals, like what's this part called and what this animal does. But in this program, kids are really going to be learning what science is, and this will help them become more informed and more critical thinkers as, as citizens when they grow up. A big component of this program is to also get kids outside so we can get them off of their devices and interacting in nature which provides so many mental health, physical health benefits. I know that parents out there are struggling with what to do with their kids since the pandemic. Well, this program has got you covered. We're going to come up with really fun activities for kids to do. If you can't always go outside, that's okay. We're going to have virtual activities as well, virtual alternatives. We are going to interact as a group. You're going to interact with me as a scientist. 
I am just so excited for this program. So if you are interested, just head over to fancyscientist.com and you should see a tab for Kids Wildlife Program. You can sign up there and get some more information. Hi, I'm Dr. Stephanie Shuttler, a wildlife biologist who's learned throughout her career studying animals that science alone cannot save species. We need you. In the Fancy Scientist podcast, you'll learn about fun animals, conservation tips, and science advice, all while breaking stereotypes about what a scientist looks like. Let's get started. A side note before we start, a couple of weeks ago, I was recording my podcasts on my deck outside because it was such beautiful weather in Raleigh, North Carolina. And today I am in Buffalo, New York, where I am from, and it is snowing. Yes, snowing. We are at the end of April here, and I am looking at at least three inches of snow. This, my people, is why I love Buffalo, New York, and moved to the south. I do not miss the snow at all. But let's talk about conservation today on this Earth Day Eve. When I first started my journey into wildlife biology, I was all about the animals. That's what I was really, really interested in. But my drive to become a wildlife biologist was not because I was innately interested in science. It's because I wanted to conserve animals. So I always wanted to have this conservation application. I wasn't as interested in studying animals or ecology merely to understand how things work. Although I know now, well, I knew then too, but I know how incredibly important that is. But my passion, my, my motivation, my drive was always in conservation. So if you've listened to previous podcasts or my YouTube channel, you may have heard my story about how I learned about wildlife biology from a program that I went to in Kenya. This was in this was at the School for Field Studies. And the way the program was structured was that there were three different main sections. So there was a section on wildlife management, there was one on ecology, and there was one on the human aspect. I can't remember exactly what it was called, but it was looking more at the people side of things. And we had to choose like a research focus. We had this research project at the end. And I could remember being like, oh my God, get me away from the people part. I do not want to have anything to do with the people part. I want to study the animals. That is really what I can. But now, 17, 18 years later, I have to change my number. I keep saying 17, but it's going to be 18 soon. 18 years later, I now have a different perspective. I have gone through the process of studying animals. I studied African forest elephants for my PhD, which now with the IUCN declaring that they're two separate species, which they actually have been for a while. They've been noted by the scientific community as two different species for quite some time now, at least, I'm going to say at least like seven years is pretty much when we all established it, maybe even 10. Now that they're separated though, 
The forest elephants are listed as critically endangered because their populations have declined so greatly within the past few decades by one study said nearly 70%. So I was studying these forest elephants and I did it again because I was interested in conservation. I was also genuinely interested in animal behavior. My dissertation my dissertation research had more of a non-applied focus. It was really about the social structure of these elephants and it was very theoretical. And I have several podcast episodes about that if you're interested in learning about my research in depth. They're also on YouTube. And you go through this process of studying the animals and writing scientific papers and you're totally in love with your research, or at least I was. I was totally captivated by it, always motivated by it. But where I felt this sense of emptiness or lack was with the publication. And I was really excited to publish in in scientific journals. And this is what, what you're encouraged to do in graduate school and from there on, depending on your job, but a lot of jobs at the post-PhD level, you will be encouraged to publish academic papers. So I, I loved being published, and I actually liked writing for academic journals, but it was like so much of my life was spent studying these animals and writing these papers. And then once it gets out there, like it's a fun moment for you and your lab will celebrate with you and stuff. But then it's kind of like a almost like a letdown. You're like, okay, this is it. And if you think about an academic paper, most of them, not that many people read in a year. He really has to make a big splash to get lots and lots of people reading it. And remember, my intention for going into this field was always conservation. So if I was studying the elephants and looking at their social structure and nobody is really reading my papers or not that many people are reading my papers like what kind of conservation impact can I have and that's the question I started asking myself really ever since I would say since I started looking for jobs after graduating with my PhD and I have loved my work at the museum the North Carolina Museum of Natural Sciences and the research we do is so so cool but again we were doing these we were studying these really theoretical things and so at the same time I I realized through a couple of different things I I started working with kids that was that was a big motivator or a big eye opener for me for understanding how conservation truly works I I wasn't seeing the impact of my research on the ground and then I also just like realized which I know sounds so silly but just so many of the conservation papers I was reading, it was like all of these problems could be solved if we changed politics, human behavior, economy, and really so much of the solutions are really around those things, which have nothing to do with animals or in terms of the science of animals. In other words, you can study forest elephants all you want, but really what saves them is things like 
having rangers on the ground to stop the poaching because poaching is the 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 single thing that is threatening them not even habitat loss in, in central africa there are a lot of areas that are intact that are great habitat for forest elephants west africa not so much but really the big threat is poaching so if we could just stop the poaching then forest elephant populations forest elephant populations would rebound and do well. And I noticed this pattern across species that if we just alleviated our impact and these species were sort of left alone, most of them would would do really well. This is not true of all species, but I would say the majority of them. So at the same time, I started working with kids and my research at the museum actually involved kids. And I, I know when you are a child, you especially at like your, your commencement speeches, people will say things to you like, you are the future and you eventually will control the world, I guess. And when you're a kid, you're just like, okay, I don't have that much impact. But now I really understand it because kids especially have so much power in terms of our environment and conservation in that if we can get them to care about the environment and conservation and the species living on this planet and they grow up as a generation to care about this then we can start to see some real big differences with with the way that we are responding to our planet and the way that we are taking care of our planet because these children will grow up and they'll become voting citizens. Some of them may hold public office. So to really be effective and work on conservation from its root problem, I have shifted my focus to people and away from animals, away from studying the animals. I still focus on the animals in terms of getting people excited about conservation through the animals because that's that's I mean I love the plants and the ecosystems as well but for me I'm I studied animals so that's my area of expertise especially mammals and that's what gets me going so that's my focus but what I really understood was that people are the answer to all of this so that whole time I was in Kenya when I was pushing away the the people subject I was like I don't want to work with people I just want to study the animals and now almost two decades later I've realized wow like if we really want to do work we have got to work on the people so let me explain how this specifically works and what I saw working with kids well first of all just Children are more receptive to different ideals, ideas, and having different values. So as an adult, if you think about sitting around the Thanksgiving dinner table, if you were to talk about politics with somebody who is very politically oriented, it doesn't matter what side of the spectrum they are on, at your dinner table, is a conversation that you have with them going to change their mind? Probably not. Chances are it's it's not. Why? Because they are really, they really identify themselves with that part of the political spectrum. Now, of course, this was will vary according to like how political they are, but they wrap up their identities and values along the lines of those of those parties. And 
children, and this is for everything as well, or for most things in life, but children, they're still figuring out who they are. They're still really receptive to understanding different perspectives in the world. So this is why reaching children is so important because your chances of influencing them are are greater than with adults and with an adult audience. It's just it's just much more difficult to change minds, to change behaviors. But with kids, it can be pretty easy, honestly, to get them excited about obviously animals, but also doing things like that are good for the environment, like reducing their plastic consumption or doing some eco-friendly lifestyle tips to help reduce climate change, those types of things. And what I really realized working with kids, I somehow came across this 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 theory, this 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 idea of the extinction of experience. And this was coined by Robert Pyle in 1978. So a long time ago this 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 concept has been going on for and it's really used to describe people's the loss of people's experience with nature. So what do I mean by that? Historically how we grew up, how Maybe not your parents, but your parents' parents, depending on how, how young you are. But I, I was definitely on the cusp of this. But historically, you know, my parents grew up with just their parents, like, opening the doors and being like, go outside and play with your friends. And it was very unsupervised. It was this very unstructured playtime. And a lot of that involved nature. And... Even if you grew up in a more suburban or urban environment, kids, they're just they're just like looking for stuff to do. So they ride bikes and maybe they end up like playing in a field and exploring, looking in a stream, things like that. We're just innately drawn to nature. So this unstructured play, this unstructured experiences with nature really get people connected to it. And this happened to me when I was a child. I spent a lot of time outdoors and I had those really strong experiences, even in a suburban area, of being connected to my nature. Like I felt a sense of ownership over it and not in the sense of like I had dominion over it, but in that it was like, my area, like I experienced that. that, And this is a really important part of the extinction of experience because it's not just seeing nature, it's having a close connection with nature, an emotional connection. Those are the really important parts. So for example, when I was younger, we had this pond near us and over time, I noticed that people developed the pond into a formal larger pond for a residential neighborhood but essentially it got turned from like a more natural wetlands to to a landscaped pond and with loss of a lot of animals and I used to go to that pond as a kid with my dad and we would look at tadpoles and frogs and we would just play in the pond so when I saw the pond be be bulldozed I thought oh my gosh, they're, you know, that's my pond and, and my frogs were there. My, the frogs that I, I like to see, those were mine. So it's really about this emotional attachment that you have. And if you have this attachment, then 
you can feel the sense of loss as you experience things like this. So the idea is when we have these emotional attachments to nature, then we can also be more empathetic to understanding the loss elsewhere across the globe. So even though I've never been to the Amazon rainforest, I can at least empathize with what the sense of loss feels like with things like the Amazon fires or deforestation because I had such a a close connection to different landscapes within my own area. This is the premise of the extinction of experience. And you might be able to see where this is going, but each generation, I would say starting with mine because we were the first generation of video games and where television became a lot more prevalent with a lot more channels, a lot more opportunity. And we did go outside, but there was also a lot of things attracting us indoors. So each generation has been spending less and less time indoors. And to make things worse, the amount of time that a child spends outdoors is predicted by their parents. If parents, therefore, grew up as a child and didn't spend a lot of time outdoors, they are therefore likely going to raise kids who spend most of their time indoors. So the cycle is self-perpetuating to get worse and worse, which therefore makes the extinction of experience worse over time. So how can we stop this cycle? Because if we don't stop this cycle, then people will lose their connections with nature and they are less likely to care about the environment, to care about things like climate change and conservation and just not vote in align with, in alignment with those issues and purchase from companies that care about those things, things like that. So how can we break this cycle? So a lot of people talk about, you know, getting kids outside and kids are outside, but a lot of it's like structured sports activities and and those don't create those up close connections with nature. So you have to create those connections. So going outside, yes, you can just like go outside and play, but in our society nowadays, I feel like parents they want to do things with their kids. Like they want purposeful activities. Like this idea of just going outside and playing is kind of lost. And there's always like an objective to it. So, you know, what can we learn from going to the backyard about science or or math? I feel like that's the way a lot of parents approach being with their children, which is not necessarily right or wrong. It's just a style that I have noticed happening more and more. So how can we stop this cycle, get kids outside more, and get them paying attention. And this also involves education too, but education limits the amount of experience. So for example, I can go on a hike with a naturalist and the naturalist can point out different things to me like different flowers, different insects, etc. But that's not really me having the experience as much. Like yes, I'm learning and yes, I'm seeing the things, but I'm not interacting with it and experiencing it on my own as much. It's more like someone teaching me. 
So at this time, I was doing citizen science or community science. I am transitioning to using the word community science because citizen science is uh, exclusive. Some people think that it means you have to be a citizen of the nation you are in, which is not true. It is open to the community, and it uses the word citizen in a more general sense of just the people living where they are. So we're shifting to community science, but I still might slip up here and there. So... I was working with these kids in eMammal, which is a community science camera trapping program, and we integrated our research into classrooms. So kids set the camera traps up, they collected data, they were looking at these, these photos of these animals, and they were identifying the animals. So by doing this activity, they are going to set up the camera trap at their school in locations that they know of, they collect the photos and they look at those animals. So even though they are not interacting directly with the animals in terms of like viewing the animals in real life, those be can become their animals. That was the idea is like, and even some schools when they recognize certain animals like deer, you can recognize by their antler patterns, they would give them names. So it would ha they would have this sort of ownership and responsibility over these animals, which as you just learned, can cause them to care. So my idea, along with some other authors, and the, the, the link to the paper is in the show notes, was that community science could be a tool and perhaps a tool to accelerate this reversal of the extinction of experiment experience. And why community science is different from random exploratory play is because I feel like it can include the best of the both worlds. Well, depending on the project, but it definitely can include the best of both worlds in terms of this free exploration, but also these educational components. But I think the 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 best part of community science is for parents and teachers looking to to teach children certain concepts that these community science projects can be really tied into these concepts and that the activities are purposeful. If you're a parent that grew up playing video games or not going outside that much and being more of an indoorsy person, you and you and you want to get your child outside you might not know what to do with them like just go for a hike like what do you what do you do so so i believe that citizen science community science can create perhaps even more meaningful connections to nature even more emotional connections because it forces you to have a purpose slow down and observe. So this is what we looked at in this study. I, along with other authors, we reviewed a bunch of other community science papers that were out there in different scientific journals. We started off with a search of nearly 1,000 papers, but we narrowed the criteria down to be for, to include papers that evaluated community science programs, so particularly evaluated the participants in the program. So when we excluded all the rest of the studies, and this is for all nature, so it was a community science 
community science studies for all of nature. So our, our definition of nature was very loose. So this could include projects like astronomy, which of course is nature, <laughs> but also like virtual interactions as well. So if you're looking at camera trap photos and you're doing a community science project strictly from your computer, but not going out into any sort of wilderness or even your backyard to set up a camera trap, we still counted that as nature. So when we looked at all the studies, we found 87 that that actually examined the the participants' motivations and outcomes of participating in community science projects. Out of all of these studies, we only found 26 studies that reviewed either motivations or outcomes or both. So this is a really small percentage. And I'll go over through some of the things that we found. And there's a lot of super cool anecdotal evidence from these community science publications, but they're still lacking the vigorous scientific study of them. So one of the challenges, of course, is is time and money from researchers. So if you are a researcher or scientist thinking about doing a community science project, if you can partner with somebody in the social sciences, I mean, that is a fantastic way to approach this, as many people are probably looking for a study. And it's a pretty easy thing to do. Um, The hardest part is to get around the IRB, which is, I think it stands for Internal Review Board, and that's for using human subjects. So even though we were doing things that were like so benign with our participants, so I I surveyed the children participants and I worked on other um, surveys with adult participants. So this required like a 10, 15 minute survey and you have to like write down all the stresses. You have to fill like the stresses that the children could feel and you have to go through or all the risks that they that they may um, suffer from by doing this. And you have to answer all these questions. So it is it is a very thorough process, but the study itself is not that difficult to administer and there's some great resources out there for questions as well. But And then very few community science programs had control groups, which makes it difficult to assess if the effect is any outcome observed is really due to the community science program. And control groups can take some some work to do. So that is difficult to do. But a big outcome of our paper was that we really wanted more community science science projects to start evaluating these programs because there are some amazing anecdotes, but not a lot of solid evidence out there. The most notable outcome and probably the easiest one to assess is knowledge. And this is this is easier to measure than other things. And if you look at other studies, like for example, there's a study where where people tried to green the city, and this is in in Paris, France, where there was a greening of Paris. They added gardens and experimentally increase the diversity, but they found that people didn't really notice it. So the difference with community science is it causes people to observe and notice things, which therefore can increase their knowledge as a result of working on the project themselves or through interactions with 
other members as well as a scientist on the project. So there's some projects that you can do more on your own. So for example, I do iNaturalist all the time. That's where you can just take pictures of um, anything living outdoors and upload it, and it will help you identify the the species either through artificial intelligence or through community support of people answering what it is. So this is a great way to improve your own knowledge without really having to do that much work. You increase your knowledge about biodiversity, about what species are around your area. And we were able to find that that knowledge was also also had an impact on on biodiversity and conservation. So for example, one study, the participants used their their knowledge that they learned from a garden butterfly program at home to make their gar- their home gardens more adept or more um, hospitable for for biodiversity. So this is a direct conservation implication because is if you listen to two weeks ago that episode, I talked about the importance of these little green space areas in connecting larger areas for, for biodiversity and being really important for smaller species, especially migratory species. In the Smithsonian Migratory Bird Center's neighborhood nest watch program they also extended their knowledge from their feeder observations so they were given they they were they they learned things about the birds at their feeders and they learned more about the birds and then they also change things elsewhere on their property even without recommendation specifically to do that this one i think is super cool in that this is from the, the University of Washington's Coastal Observation and Seabird Survey Team. It's called COAST, and they have some really cool papers out there. But they found that the participants in their project, so the main point of this of this project is to scan for seabirds. So they look for seabird carcasses, and they try to, I believe, I'm not actually sure of the protocol, but I think they, they try to figure out what caused the death and I believe they scan for birds as well too I'm not 100% sure but I know it's involved with seabirds hence seabirds is in the team name but but anyway so they go across these beaches and and actually in their sites the participants would say things like my beach like I was I was surveying my beach and they actually began to clean their beach sites even though nobody in this program ever mentioned cleaning up their beach site at all. So this is something that participants did completely on their no- on their own and probably because they became t- attached to their beach. They started to care about their beach and saw the impact of things like plastics and garbage or the impact that it could have on animals. So I thought that was a really cool result. One of the things that the adults in the eMammal program, like the teachers I worked with, that they they really liked working with community science in I don't, let me let me rephrase that. One of the things the adults really liked about working in community in our community science projects is that they got to work directly with scientists. So we had direct communication through email. I gave talks to their class, and in a lot of these other community science projects, they have forums where you can post questions. Scientists can answer them. In some community science projects, you can actually go with a scientist. So like in Earthwatch projects, you do have to pay for them. But but I know that you can, you work directly with a scientist and can do things like track a coyote or help tag a sea turtle. 
So there are opportunities like that, even outside of Earthwatch. But one of the things that that science or that the citizen scientists really loved was this interaction with the scientists because it improved their knowledge. But one of the funny things is that some of the studies, the the participants actually reported that their knowledge went down throughout the program. So they they reported themselves as having a really high knowledge base or a higher knowledge base. And then after the program, they reported a number lower than it was previously ranked. So you're like, what? They lost knowledge during the citizen science program? How is that possible? But there's opportunities in the survey for them to explain. And what actually was going on is by them talking to the scientists, they found out, or even just like them being in the program and learning about the animals, they found out that there's still so much out there that we don't know, that they don't know. So their world of knowledge to be learned expanded. And it wasn't necessarily that they decreased their knowledge, but they realized there's so much more out there to learn. And therefore, they had to rank their knowledge lower. So that was a really cool result that was seemingly negative, but is actually a positive result. There may also be some impact of kind of like gamifying nature or making community science and getting outside more of a habitual practice. And there might be a couple of factors playing on this, but there's been results, from example, from the Coast Project where people who, who had a deeper understanding of the data collection, they adopted additional survey sites. We've seen that with our eMAML volunteers. We've had what we call super volunteers who go out there and set multiple camera traps. And citizen science programs can take advantage of this gamification by awarding people badges or honors for completing, for completing different levels of activities. And I also think like once you get involved in one community science project, you you kind of like get a little bit addicted and want to try other ones out. And some did talk about that when they were especially doing like the the screen or the virtual activities. Like I know I felt that way with eMammal when I was when I was approving volunteers' identifications of the mammals, I would just be like, okay, one more deployment or one more one more sequence. And it can get addicting and fun. So it is, it is good. Being addicted to nature is a pretty good thing. And the sense of purpose was also important too because – one one participant in one of the studies, like I mentioned before, it, it, community science has a, a has a larger purpose. So they are com- they are contributing and or and to a larger good. It's it's a good greater than your individual self. It's science. So if you like to do something like garden and you consider that more play, or you know, like you should be working instead, you can have you can change your mindset to be that you are doing something for the greater good. And one participant from the Garden Birdwatch program, which was from the British Trust for Ornithology, stated that their participation justified their hobby of birdwatching, and it made them feel less guilty when doing so. I just, I love that quote. But you should never feel guilty about birdwatching. Another cool 
result that community science can have is that it can give access to nature that people might not have access to. For example, if there's a community science project being done in a certain um, section of a national park or in wilderness areas where people are blocked off except for researchers, this could give people more opportunities to experience different types of landscapes. Or maybe if they live in a more urban environment, and this is this would be more for affluent people, but if they could drive out to these areas, they might be able to experience nature that they don't get every day in their more urban environments. Being in nature too, like I mentioned before, there can be maybe this like addictive factor of the community science thing. But I also think something that might be perpetuating it is nature itself. There's a lot of research on the healing effects of nature and even being outside, look, even looking at pictures of nature, but the effects of the sun with vitamin D and changing your sleep habits, it really influences your circadian rhythm. All of that stuff is really, really good for your health. And participants reported in some studies like just feeling really good. So in addition to that sense of accomplishment and contributing to science, they also felt good just being in nature and having these more emotional connections and also to their communities too. Some of these community science programs can be done individually, but some of them are done as groups and it could be a way to to meet great people in your neighborhood. So that wraps up the, the main results of our study and the main benefits that we perceive from community science. Of course, there needs to be a lot more studies. But one of the things that we also found is that in order for this to work, to truly reverse the extinction of experience, we have to reach people who are not necessarily innately interested in nature. So a lot of these community science programs, they attract people who are already interested in nature. So the result of them being more knowledgeable about species or ecological effects or feeling good or any of these other benefits may be amplified because those people are already receptive to feeling that way. They're already attracted to nature, so they're excited by learning about it and their knowledge increases. Whereas if you take a regular person off the street and they don't necessarily have any experiences with nature, then they might not necessarily feel the same way going through those community science programs. So we need to figure out if those effects are real, but I... I tend to think that they are real because there are some anecdotal examples with with other people going through community science programs who have less of a choice. So for example, I know that certain companies have had their CEOs go through a community science programs. And I'm not sure exactly how it happened, but I know one program talked to me about that, that their CEOs participate. And I think their higher level staff participates. So maybe they're not already innately interested in nature. There's also been community science programs in prisons. So, so maybe they're not innately interested in nature, but it's an activity for them to participate in that sounds a little bit interesting, better to something else that, that they'd they'd rather be doing. And there's actually, I don't know the specific program, 
but I've heard about this butterfly program where the butterflies were really difficult to rear in captivity and they integrated into prison systems and actually the prisoners were better than the scientists at rearing the butterflies successfully because it's a really careful, tedious process and it requires a lot of time. And these programs are also helpful to the participants as well. So those programs reported that the prisoners felt better, that, that they were it was more easier for them to acclimate into society when they were released, things like that. So I suspect that these effects work on, on most people. That being said, though, how can we get people who are not innately interested in nature to sign up? This is this is a struggle or a challenge that we will have if we're trying to reverse the extinction of experience. So we can talk about it more. You can share your experiences. Try to take a friend if you're doing a community science project and maybe somebody who is not that interested. If you have children, get them involved. Get your children's friend involved because as I mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, they are likely to have the biggest impact received from being in these programs. If you're an adult though, these programs are fun. So go to SciStarter.org and get yourself enrolled in a community science project find one that you're interested in and the one way that I did it is by working with schools and we integrated community science programs with teachers so that students could learn science by doing real science that was really the the result and the goal of what we were going for in the project that I worked on. So hopefully we can also change the educational system to move away from testing and more towards project-based learning where students are not so pressured to receive certain scores. So if you have ideas for how we can do this, then please send them to me through email at my website, fancyscientist.com, any of my social media channels. I'd be love I'd love to share them. Let me know what you think. Tag me in your, your community science projects. I love to see new ones. There's tons of them out there. Let me know what you're learning. And thank you guys so much for listening. We'll be back next week with more talk about community science. If you liked this episode, care about wildlife, care about conservation, or know somebody who is interested in going into wildlife biology careers, please share this episode. You can also rate and review my podcast that really helps people find it. My goal is to spread messages of conservation and kindness for wildlife and to help people navigate wildlife biology careers. Rating and reviewing my podcast really helps other people find it. If you have questions or show ideas, you can find me at fancyscientist.com. My social media handles are at fancyscientist. On Instagram, there's an underscore between fancy and scientist. You can also send an email to hello at fancyscientist.com. If you're an aspiring wildlife biologist, ecologist, or zoologist, you can join me every Wednesday at 12 p.m. Eastern Standard Time for Facebook Live, where I answer different career questions. You can also ask me questions on the spot. I'm here for you. 
Thank you so much for listening. I appreciate every single one of you. I am so grateful for you. I hope you have an amazing day. Be kind to animals and be kind to each other. 